Well, uh, as you know, we're live, so welcome back. It's been a while. How you doing? Doing great. How about yourself? Can't complain. You know, the world is in a weird place, but there's no sense in complaining. <laughs> you've uh, you've obviously been. You know, I listened to our previous conversation today, and it was in. I think it was the Tuesday after the big sell-off on Monday in March. Okay. Pri- prior to the Thursday sell-off that was, you know, bloody Thursday. So, uh, so how me- was it? Where did we, were we saying crazy things or were we on target? No. Well, I mean, I don't know about my performance, but I think you did pretty darn well Okay. as, yeah. as you're, as you're known to do. And, uh, I think we all, you know, I think we've come to uh, schedule another talk on a very relevant, uh, period in uh, markets and Bitcoin history tonight. So um, maybe just for the very few people that are not familiar with you, uh, the, the, the typical in- intro spiel, and then we'll break into some of the, the fun stuff that's going on. You know, I'm just the guy that really likes finance and I like numbers. And uh, I've been in the space for, I, I, it's not a decade yet, but we're, we're getting there of just doing media and uh, really kind of got my start much more on the stock investing side uh, with a Warren Buffett style approach, kind of evolved into some macro thinking with a lot of Ray Dalio ideas. And then, uh, you know, in 2015, started doing the Bitcoin thing and it's been one heck of a ride ever since. That's all I can say. And now you're irresponsibly long. No, just no. like that. <laughs> now I'm responsibly long. I like to flip that on its head. <laughs> yeah, true, true. Touche. Um, well, man, I mean, there's so much to talk about. Uh, there, there always is. And uh, people seem to have an unquenchable thirst to hear from Preston about, about these issues. So kudos to you on, uh, on doing your job so well and articulating these thoughts in, in such a digestible way and a, and a manner in which people obviously have come to value uh, greatly. Um, Let's just talk about the micro strategy news because that's uh, that's what's on everybody's minds. Did you have a chance to hear Sailor on Pomp's podcast today? I did. I did. I, I listened to it this morning, and uh, kudos to both of them to get that recorded. I thought it was a great conversation. Um, can't really say there was anything in there that surprised me uh, at all. <laughs> well, nothing surprised me. And actually, I'm going to pull a quote, and I don't think this was. Um, well, one thing surprised me, and I, I I published it on Twitter today, a little audio clip where it was something of the effect, like, I don't want to hear about, you know, transaction scalability and this and that. I want you to defend to the death anything that, you know, would in any shape or form inhibit or damage this, you know, this protocol, which for a guy that came into it from by his own admission in March, you know, kind of sitting around mm-hmm. the house with a little too much COVID time on their hands kind of a blank slate to be that convicted after you know six months or so is was pretty i wasn't surprised because it's happened to a lot of us but the time it's amazing how quickly it happened i guess is what i'm saying i mean he's a he's a tech entrepreneur he understands network effects um he obviously understands the macro finance which in my opinion is is not where every ceo is is at right like they they understand their product line. They understand how to keep their customers happy. They know how to evolve within that product or service. But getting them to be good capital allocators is typically um, not real common to, to find uh, the CEOs that are able to evolve and to, to think 
in, in so many different layers and, and be good at all those different facets. So um, he's a very smart dude. It's, it's, it's quite obvious. And I don't know. I think this is, this is a very exciting thing to see play out. It's interesting. I was kind of shocked. I'll, I'll tell you the one thing that surprised me was his question to Pomp at the end of the interview talking about Jack Dorsey. I mean, the difference between him and Jack Dorsey is he has the voting rights and Jack doesn't, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's what it really comes down to. And I think um, if there's going to be any delay, especially in the public markets of, of other companies doing big, bold plays like he has done, it's going to revolve around the idea that most of these publicly traded companies have not retained a majority of voting rights because you can split the, the earning rights and the voting rights out. And um, I just don't think when you get into billion dollar companies to have somebody that can still have a majority in the voting rights to, to kind of lead the board in the direction that, that Michael was able to do. I mean, he was giving, he was, he was involved with his board. He was giving them homework assignments, but let's not mistake it. he, he had the voting rights in order to make this thing happen. And I don't think that that's necessarily the case with a lot of publicly traded companies with a market cap over a billion dollars. So mm-hmm. um, as, as we see this thing continue to evolve in the coming quarters, um, I think that you are going to see Bitcoin show up on other publicly traded companies' balance sheets, particularly I would expect it in, in tech companies. But I don't think that you're going to see such a bold move like we saw with MicroStrategy. I think you're going to see 5%. 10%, maybe not even higher than that. Um, yeah, well, that was the conventional wisdom, right? Like if, if our thesis was correct around this stuff, it was kind of an ine- inevitability that, you know, organizations would start making somewhat of, some kind of an allocation. Now, whether you're a hedge fund or you're a private business, public businesses were probably a little bit further down the timeline in most of our minds. But the fact that, uh, and actually, this is a great time to bring up that quote in terms of making an allocation, because he said in the CoinDesk, I believe it was article, this is not a speculation, nor is it a hedge. This was a deliberate corporate strategy to adopt a Bitcoin standard. Yeah. I mean, I don't think any of us thought we would be hearing those words at this point. So Pomp asked him a question, and I, I was thinking this well before the way Michael responded, because... I know how I look at my own business and how I've adopted a Bitcoin standard, very similar to what he has done. And if that Bitcoin blows up, or let's just say it has a a very strong sell-off with no recovery, does that impact my business operations? No. Is it going to impact his business operations for the most part? Not really. Um, Does it inhibit his ability to make acquisitions upstream and downstream and, and, in parallel to where he's at in order to increase market share or whatever. Yeah, it it will. But as far as the product and the service that his company's providing, they're going to continue to, to bang out 20 to 30 billion or 20 to $30 million a year in bottom line net income that they'll continue to bank onto their balance sheet and flow into whatever assets they want that his Bitcoin position is not going to impact that. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, for a lot of companies on the market, they're not profitable, right? And so he had the comment about, hey, you got to be making money to be effectively doing this. And I think that's the, that's the thing that I absolutely love about this. Because for the last 10 years, we've watched zombie company after zombie company and fiat printing that has nested itself into higher and higher venture capital market 
series or round 32 of bidding the price higher only to bring it into the public market at a, a PE of 50 or higher, right? It's total crap, mm-hmm. right? This is, this is not free and open markets. And that's, it's total crap. And so what you're, what I'm excited about is you're, this thing is just going to nail all those activities to the wall. If you're not making money, guess what? You're going to have to die, right? You, it's just not going to work anymore. And um, I just cannot wait to see the stock price on micro strategy in a year from now. I, I'm like salivating to see what that looks like. The, the start of this year, right? And then in March with the sell-off, his stock price was at $91 in March. Today, it's $174, mm-hmm. right? And you know how much his business operations have changed? Zero. You know, in the grand scheme of things, if we're really yeah. being honest with each other, nothing has changed with his, with his operations at his business, nothing. And he's gone from $91 in March and he's at $174 today. And guess what? Uh, it could 10X within 12 months from now. And he still has the same $30 million net income type activities happening on his balance sheet as far as the, the assets that are gen- generating revenue. Yeah. And you know, it's an interesting, somewhat of a side note around that. Cause I think what, when, when the stock pumped, I think it, they were up 9% yesterday on the news, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, when that happens, that's the market validating the move, obviously. Absolutely. Right? And so I think, uh, you know, a ton of boards, executive teams are going to look at that and say, wait a sec. First of all, the merits of the strategy itself, right? Making an allocation of Bitcoin. Okay. That's one thing and that's separate. But on top, we're getting the gravy on top of that by the market saying we support this decision making and we're gonna, we're going to reward you with with appreciation of the stock price. Well, why wouldn't you? You know, yeah. if you can clear the hurdles. Exactly. I yeah, mean, and it's. And he was saying that you know this took them. They had all their ducks in a row, and it took them about I think three to six months to get everything ready to do this. And I think he insinuated that. And he agreed with, you know, what I just said, where that a lot of companies are going to be looking at it like this and expect in the next three, four, five, six months to see, you know, at that time when, when the clock has ticked forward that much, when, when they've gotten their ducks in the row and they're able to do the same thing to see that happening. So, and I know you've had the ear of a, you've, you've suggested you've had the ear of a few uh, back, you know, boardroom people uh, over the last few months. So maybe you've, you've got some special insight into other, you know, companies that might be planning the same thing. I mean, if you think, and, and this is the thing with how these boards work, is if you're on one board, you're on three or four or five boards, right? Right. And so if you're doing something with this one company over here, they talk, they play at the same country club, they, <laughs> word gets around fast in that community. And uh, I mean, I was just talking with Jeff Booth, he was saying, this is becoming a boardroom conversation. It mm-hmm. absolutely is. And so... And, and realize the, in the private side where you have, in my opinion, a lot more people that have that controlling share of the business and go in, and can go into make these bold calls. Um, you know, you're not even going to see that it's not even going to get published because they don't have to share their, just like my company. I don't have to show anybody what my company's doing on its balance sheet. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, and yeah. I think, I, I think he said, um, or maybe sorry, not he did. Was it you who published the the 
the top shareholders in MicroStrat? Because I believe it's, is it Blackstone and Vanguard? Are they yeah, the top two? But, but I don't think that they have, there's, if you go into his 10K, um, you, can, you can see that the voting rights that have been stripped out, he holds, he holds a, a serious amount sure, of the voting sure. rights of the direction of the company, regardless of the, the, yeah, uh, no, I, I just mean from a taking note perspective that, you know, they're going oh, yeah, exactly. to be aware of a move like that, obviously, exactly. you know, and especially they, come January, right. as we get into 2021, they're going to be hyper aware. And they got their hands in a there. lot of pies, right? Yeah. You yeah. know, what's interesting about uh, what he said as well was, and I, I, I think, you know, you as a podcaster with a, a big audience and, you know, most of us who create content to some degree, you know, we get the odd message from people saying, you know, thanks, really love your work. You, you set me on the course of understanding this stuff, et cetera. And which is great, but you never, you, you know, you're speaking into a mic, at least, you know, I don't know what your experience has been like, but you kind of forget that there are real people and real decision makers on the other end, listening to your thoughts and your words mm -hmm. and the conversations mm -hmm. that you're having. And, he, and so Sailor said, you know, uh, you know, Pomp and Parker Lewis and, you know, Bullish Case for Bitcoin. These were some of the resources that he consulted to form his thinking on this and mm -hmm. which he, as you said, forwarded on to his, his executive team and his board. And um, I mean, I share private messages with Michael, so I'm, I'm, he's talking to us. Trust me. Right. Well, <laughs> he's that, having that... conversations with, with a lot <laughs> of folks in the community. So, so were you yeah. part of orange pilling him over the last few months? Was that no, a not private really. conversation that was going on? Nope. I, I think he, he started taking these actions before he started communicating with various people in the, in the media space, uh, you know, call it pomp or whoever. I think he's been doing a lot of homework behind the scenes. Yeah. Yeah. And my, my point there was just going to be, it's, it's a validation of the thesis, right? We've all been talking about this for a long time. We, we, we believe it so vehemently and we're so passionate about it. And we, we, we want so much to see it succeed, not just for our own individual financial gain. Uh, and to see, you know, the exterior, exterior world really validated in a very serious way. That's cool, right? That's, that's great. But um, to, to also validate what it is those of us who are writing creating content putting out videos whatever be validated too that's really interesting to know that you know there's leverage in these voices that are going out there and i gotta you know i i mentioned that i was going to be speaking to you today, today on twitter and i don't know if you're familiar with tahini's it's a, a restaurant uh, group in uh, Ontario, i have Canada. seen some of their posts yes so they came out after the original MicroStrategy uh, announcement and said that they've done the same thing. They fell down the rabbit hole earlier in the year and in March decided this was a good you know, move for their business. And then Snappa is a graphic design uh, software company in Canada as well. And uh, Chris Gimmer, who's a co-founder, he wrote a great uh, blog post. I don't know if you saw that one, but it was, again, explaining their rationale for investing in Bitcoin and moving balance sheet funds into Bitcoin. And they both asked me to tell you um, thank you because it was you, I think, at least for Chris, he came through the Investor podcast and awesome. uh, the, the Tahini's guys, I'm not sure where their entry point on you was, but they said for both of them, you were instrumental in helping inform their decision-making and, and pull the trigger on this. So, I'm you know, I, I hope I'm giving, <laughs> giving well, good, good well, of course you are, of course you are, <laughs> but you know, well, yeah, we will find out, 
But, uh, you know, that's the two small examples, of course, but it, you know, proves the kind of, and the, the, the micro strategy example is obviously a much larger one, but just that, you know, this has a material effect. Like this yeah. conversation we're happening right now, people are using it to mull over, to marinate, to chew on, and to think about what decisions they're going to make for themselves individually and for their companies. And it's, it's, it's another weird, wacky element of, of this thing that we're all participating in. Yeah. I, for me, it is, it's just been, uh, it's been kind of fascinating to see. Uh, you can tell when somebody's really understanding the really kind of the four-year cycle. And I think the four-year cycle part of it is it's just a fractal upon a, the next fractal four years later. And, um, and we've only seen a few of them, but all indicators after this last having event is that it's, it's acting very similar to what happened back in 2016 when we had the last having and, and how it takes time for the gears to kind of start setting in. But uh, all indicators are suggesting we're going to see something very similar to what we saw last time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let's, let's break into that because I think whether it's just on how Bitcoin's price performance is going to go over the next 18 to 24 months, or that in conjunction with the macro uh, economic landscape, you know, of course, everybody's wondering because we always want to know what's going to happen. But what's your take on where we are in the macro cycle and the macro landscape right now and how that affects Bitcoin and how Bitcoin is influencing the macro cycle? Um, I think... I don't think Bitcoin, the protocol, really kind of cares all that much uh, as to what's going on because I'm a firm believer that the that the the floor of that is being driven by miner uh, miners dropping the flow onto the market. Um, so I think I think if if you were gonna fix fiat and like everyone is now not gonna print in the, in the levels that we know are on the horizon and you would just fix it where it's at right now. And you could, you could say, Hey, all the credit that's in the system doesn't become impaired. All the actual monetary baseline units are fixed at this point. I, I still think that the price is going to this next a uh, hundred thousand level. I, I really kind of firmly believe that. Um, and I think that it's, it's going to be based off of the, uh, the production cost for those miners that that's going to drive it there. I think when people are thinking about it going up, you're almost always biased to think, well, there's more buyers than sellers. But if I could just frame something a little bit differently, I would say there's a whole lot less sellers than there are buyers, which is effectively the same thing. But I think that the lack of supply that's being dropped onto the market is what's driving that price more so than more people figuring it out right now. I think the, the miners are absolutely setting that floor. And for me, the, the simple question I always ask myself whenever I look at a log chart for the last 10 years and you see the shape and you can mm -hmm. see where it comes off. Like if you were going to draw the line on the base of that, I, I don't know about you, John, you've been in finance for quite a few years. Like, have you ever seen a chart that does that? A price chart that does that? No, not over that. No, period over time. a 10 year period of time, something that just like this perfect Metcalf's law shape to it. Like, so for me, there's something that is, uh, that's engineered into the code that's driving that. 
And so I've really tried to wrap my head around what is that that's, that's, that's driving the price floor. I think whenever it separates away from that, that floor, I think there's something emotional that's driving the price beyond, beyond whatever that thing is that's holding it in there. And the only thing I can, I can come to the conclusion on is that those are miners that are setting that, that price floor. I think that if early on, let's say this protocol was developed and you had uh, the protocol get forked, the, a different, let's just say we have Bitcoin, right? And then we have Bitcoin 2.0 that gets forked and the market thinks that it's, it's even more decentralized and that the market thinks that it uh, provides better security than Bitcoin 1, 1.0. I would I would suspect that 2.0 would um, take on this shape and Bitcoin 1.0 would look more like a like a Litecoin chart or something like that. So um, I think it's very important for that price floor that to continue to be set by the miners. It has to continue to be the best form of decentralized money. Uh, viewed by all the market participants in order for it to continue to be valid and for that to continue to be taking place over the long term, mm-hmm. uh, which I don't see any type of competitor in the space that would would do that at this point. Yeah, I agree. What do you think is, you know, <clears throat> this this debate kind of happens periodically or it's always ongoing, but when you say is the best form of money has the highest level of security, you know, there's a the conversation around ossification and the things that, you know, cannot be changed and then the things that can be changed. And, uh, you know, to what degree, degree how sac- sacrosanct are certain elements of Bitcoin in order for it to maintain what it currently is? You know, whether it's a ultimately absolutely scarce form of money, et cetera, et cetera. What do you think is it that makes Bitcoin Bitcoin? the fact that nobody can step in and change it. I mean, at the end of the day, I think that's what Michael Saylor was saying is if he felt like there was an entity that could come in and control the code, then there's some serious concern there. Um, you know, and I, how in the world are you going to offset all the, all the node operators? If you're running a full node, it's it's effectively voting rights of a business. And it's the same thing. So mm-hmm. um I don't I don't I cannot think of any way that that can be disrupted. And I think that, that what this entire thing is about is it's about decentralizing and taking the human out of the loop for um what we've seen in the manipulation that we've seen through central banking policy. I think everybody's going to come to the realization here very shortly as to how destructive that is when, when you manipulate it for that many decades, what type of destruction that's going to actually do. And I think the market is just going to say, we need something where there is no human controlling this thing and that no one can step in and manipulate it. Mm -hmm. That has some serious uh, staying power as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Breedlove coined the term or brought the term the incorruptible substance to uh, his most recent article on Bitcoin. I thought that was a really great analogy to make and uh, hopefully an accurate one. And, Uh, and, and and I don't want to just discredit the fact that you have a fixed baseline of supply, a known 
issuance rate that then stops. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, that's the polar opposite of what we have today. And it's the polar opposite of Ethereum as far as I'm concerned. Right. And as far as you're concerned, in the discussions about, well, should we introduce some degree of inflation for minor rewards in some future theoretical time? Obviously, the answer is absolutely not. Let me ask you this. So from like, like I buy stock, you buy stock, right? What problem are you solving that is broke in that, in that structure? You can say the fees are high. I guess you could go that route, right? But Robinhood, there's no fees. You've got some high-frequency traders that are, but as an individual, that doesn't really impact me mm -hmm. if I'm buying stock for free on Robinhood. So, like, what's the problem that you're solving with smart with these smart contracts that you oh. can't already get in the marketplace? Oh, smart right? contracts. Yeah, I mean, that's where I'm going. Like, uh, like I'm going on on Ethereum. Okay, no okay. <laughs> Go so, for like, it. for me, like, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna buy something because I feel like I'm solving a problem, like when it comes to Bitcoin, we're solving the central banking total delusion of the value of currency and the buying power. I get it. Like, I understand what we're trying to achieve, but what are you trying to achieve with the smart contracts? The decentralized finance. Well, why do I need, why do I need to be able to issue tokens of uh, stock? And uh, okay. I just lost you for a second. I thought I, I thought I dropped off. <laughs> why do good. I need to do that? Like what problem am I solving? Well, I mean, yeah, you got a centralized entity that's managing your stock certificates. But when has that ever been a problem, right? I've never had E-Trade run off with my stock certificates and say, hey, I'm not giving them back to you, Yeah. right? So what are, you, what are you solving? I'm totally the wrong person to ask because I spend so, no, 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 so, I, so much little time. I know what you're saying. It's a rhetorical question, but like I just- I don't have an answer to it. Right, right. And that's, so, the, that's the issue. That's the issue. So like if, if you're not solving a problem, then what the hell are you doing? Yeah, I, I agree. And the other thing that I often, when I get into these um, discussions, is it what Bitcoin is is attempting to do here is so damn important and valuable. Yeah. Like, can we just... And I feel like if you start focusing on far lower... Let's say there is some kind of problem that smart contracts on Ethereum are solving for some people. Let's just... Which they will. Right. Yes, let's which just they say will. that yeah. for a second. It's yeah. so much lower down, so far lower down on the rung than, you know, disrupting central banking. So, like, let, let's keep the main thing the main thing. And once we nail that down, who knows what, what comes after that? And the same is true for, you know, it was true for the people, you know, the big blockers back during that time and saying, like, well, I can't pay for coffee with my Bitcoins. Like, guys, guys, first of all. That's not a coffee. problem. Yeah, that, like <laughs> nobody has a problem paying for their coffee. What we have a problem with is the institution of central banking and how yeah. their cost-free creation and control of money is putting a huge damper on effectively humanity, you know, in, in many different ways. So like, can we not come together and focus on that? And we'll worry about Amen, all the fun man. stuff later, you know? There's going to be stuff that pops out of that technology. Do not get me wrong. For sure, like, yeah. The, the whole decentralized contracts, I get it. There's going to be, there's going to be a use case for this for sure. But today, I, I just don't, I don't see. Oh boy. 
and, and your point about the the cash thing, like you go down the Roger Ver route and it's like, why? Why do I have to be able to go and buy a cup of coffee with this? I, the the system we have right now works. Mm-hmm. Like that's not the problem. Yeah. And, you know, and this 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 point might be a little bit more contentious for some, but I think people of that mind, as Roger, you just mentioned, fail to realize that cha- like changes of that nature of, of these fundamental things like block size and, and uh, hard cap, et cetera. Like once you change those things, I feel like it's kind of it slips through your hands, like it's lost the the kind of the magic of it being unchanging is is gone. And you've you've yeah. kind of corrupted the incorruptible substance, as it were. The problem that, and I think this is why for me, it, it came up on my radar a little earlier, just because of how I was doing valuations on businesses, right? Because it all comes down when you're doing valuations on businesses, this Warren Buffett style of investing, it all comes down to the cost of capital. And then what premium you're putting on top of that risk-free rate to, to uh, account for the risks associated in the business. So I could see the trend and I could see the manipulation that was happening and how the central banks weren't allowing the market to function in a free and open manner. And then you look at the trend that the, that the 10 year treasury is taking towards zero. And then you look all around the globe and they're already at zero and they're negative and you're starting to scratch your head and you're saying, hold on a second. How in the world can I possibly come up with a valuation on this business if there's no risk-free rate? Mm. Like the cost of capital is zero? (laughs) How is that possible? Right. And so everything was just for me when I'm trying to do these valuations on businesses and and I'm estimating the future free cash flows and I'm saying, okay, I'm going to discount this back to today's rate and I'm going to come up with this valuation. And you're looking at the valuation, you're saying, this doesn't make any sense. What in the world is going on? And and how is anybody else doing this right now? Because you might as well take your finance book and just burn it from the university because it's total trash at that point. And if you have a a discussion with a professor, they just nerd out and say, well, you know, maybe maybe your cost of capital is 0.01. And you're just like, dude, what, are you an alien, right? Like, how can you possibly say that and believe what you're saying right now? I think the answer to that is, is a lot of these people are so, um, you know, their thinking is so ingrained in the way this system has operated for so long that whatever it shows back at them is by default fine and normal and just something to be contended with. They've never run a real business. Well, that too. They've never created real value in the marketplace that they own the equity of. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's what, for me, that's what it always comes down to. Cause it's like, if you were, if you were creating real value in the marketplace, like Michael Saylor is a perfect example. Here's a guy, he's making $30 million a year, like profit, right? His top line, I want to say is like 500 million, right? His bottom line, $30 million. He's banking it right onto the balance sheet every year, right? He's creating real value that the market is putting a premium on and paying a profit on, on top of for the service and the, the product he's, he's providing. Right. So now he's, he's, he's sliding that over and putting it on his balance sheet and he's saying, all right, now how in the world can I protect this or make this grow for me? Right. That's how somebody who's actually generating value in the marketplace thinks they're not thinking about some cap M model 
of volatility of this particular, you know, three letter ticker compared to the volatility of the market and then coming up with some, you know, bird brain like valuation off of it. Like that crap is for somebody with a book, a ruler and a pencil and not for somebody that's actually creating real value in the marketplace. And so that's why these, when you find people that have a substantial portion of the equity in the voting rights remaining in their company that they founded, that they actually created value, they get this so fast and so easily because they're looking around and saying, this is nuts. How can I compete against a company that just gets free handouts and never has to produce a bottom line? How do you compete with that? Yeah. You're, you're incentivized to just take all, you're incentivized to take even more risks and not create a bottom line. It's nuts. Speaking of nuts, um, did you catch any of Jay Powell's uh, speech and Dude, I can't QAs even watch today? <laughs> I can't even watch it anymore. I mean, why watch it? You know, it's just you know, it's just going to be total quackery, right? I, I guess. Well, I watch yeah, it to be refreshing. honest with you. I watch it for that because you know, a, a, a part of me is devastated that this is the state of of the world, but the other part of me, knowing that you know we have something to fight quote unquote fight back with gets some perverse enjoyment out of watching just how absurd it all is insane it is yeah i we uh, i guess the comments i saw some comments on twitter but i guess he basically came out and said that we need more fiscal spending so that we can buy that debt like like i go back to the husband and wife example right? The husband's out there spending all sorts of money and the wife's the ones paying the bills. And she's saying, Hey, we need, we need the interest rates to be even worse than what we're doing. And like, like we're going to, we're going to increase inflation, right? Which guarantees that your, that your interest rates are going to go up, right? Like what wife would be telling her husband their, their means that we need the interest rates to go up. It doesn't even make sense what they're saying anymore. It's just what I took from it was, you know, in, in years past, the Fed chairman, chairwoman was, was typically, you know, you had to kind of interpret their intent. Like they would use words like dovish or restrained or et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, you would kind of infer what their forward looking behavior was going to be like. And yeah. what I took from his, I only watched, you know, 15 minutes or so, but I think I got the meat of it. Um, <clears throat> you know, he basically said, we're going to target a higher rate of inflation, you know, 2% maybe overshoot. Um, but we're going to keep, you know, rates low and we're going to, you know, have very supportive policy. And he kept using this terminology until I, I think 2023. 2023 is the tweets that I was Yeah. Seeing. And so he, you know, and he was emphatic that like this was a very accommodating policy for far more forward looking than they typically give, you know, until the year 2023. And so, you know, to me, and I wasn't surprised to to hear that, it seems incredibly desperate to me. You know, he's trying to signal to the market, totally. we're going to be as supportive of as we need to be. So you guys, you know, borrow, invest, you know, do what you need to do because we're going to just, you know, put a syringe in your arm and jack it up as much as we need to. That that's That was my interpretation of his remarks. I don't think there's anybody with a decent size of money in the marketplace today that's just not looking at the central bank policy and saying, all right, this is clearly trending in a disastrous direction with no end in sight. 
but what can I do in the short term to make sure that I continue to, you know, increase my buying power uh, and play the game because obviously the music hasn't stopped. Yeah. And so that, that's a dangerous, <laughs> that's a dangerous place to be, especially if you don't understand Bitcoin. Oh, totally. But you know, th this is one of the things that I've been thinking about is, <clears throat> and, and I'd love to get your, obviously your take on this and also the kind of inflation deflation, uh, conversation that's going on but if, it seems like we've been detached from reality economic reality so the markets have obviously been detached from economic reality for some time and it's been uh so much more obvious during the crisis than before and you know a lot of people think well the fed's going to inject a ton of cash into the system and we're going to try to you know uh supercharge or you know weekend at Bernie's sort of this recovery and, you know, get the, get the corpse rolling again. And, you know, maybe it'll be a really weak recovery until there's a vaccine and maybe it'll pick up some steam. And I just can't shake the feeling that one, you know, people aren't considering the degree to which small businesses um, and commercial real estate <clears throat> have, you know, are going to be severely impaired. And there's going to be a lot of insolvencies. And, at some point, does that reality not have to influence all the other, you know, all the other things that people are intentionally putting blinders on to focus solely on? But will the the damage in those sectors not show up in the markers that the Fed or your the typical finance people are looking at? And basically, what I'm saying is like, do we not see, in addition to the the macro fragility of the system? Do we not see kind of a larger scale, unexpected, like severe downturn in the short to medium term? Because um, I can't, I, it's hard for me to imagine that we don't see that. And we just kind of restart 2008 the way we did back then, just on a larger scale. And we kind of putter our way ahead and until whatever happens in 10 years time. I think that you continue to see these policies play out until the market can, can spot an opportunity uh, for an exit hatch and the exit ha hatch has to be an alternative currency than what's being used. Right. I don't suspect the game theory on governments coming to the table to hold themselves fiscally responsible as a real exit hatch. I think that's a talking point that lives in fantasy land. Sure. And everyone who's listening to this knows where I'm going, right? Because there's, in, in my opinion, there's, there's one alternative that's going to emerge as this thing that the rest of the market's going to spot and say, what the hell's that? Why is that doing what it's doing? And then they're going to do the homework and then the rest is going to take care of itself. Um, I think that um, what we've seen to date could have been drug out way longer than what we saw. And I would, I would describe this as being drug out since really kind of 2008. The markers, the, the trends in interest rates since 1981, and then by the time we got to 2008, your federal funds rate was in excess of 5%. So everything still seemed like it was operating normally and that you could have had the potential for this to kind of start going through another reflationary period like you saw from the forties up until the eighties and maybe it would have been reverted without any type of social unrest. But I, I would argue after 2008 till now, it's been very clear that, um, 
the central banks cannot allow this thing, this, this market to crash or else everything comes unglued. So how I think that they could have extended it even more than the 12 years that we got out of this, because they've pulled one lever for 12 years. Hmm. That lever was insert liquidity via the bond market. And if I was just going to say top or bottom, we're inserting liquidity to the top. We're going to drive asset prices up. And that's how we're going to continue to provide liquidity into the game. If we were playing the game of Monopoly, I like to use that as an example. If we were playing the game of Monopoly and we were the banker, we'd be, we keep going back to the person who's winning on the game, who's really kind of achieving Monopoly at that point, And we're stuffing the cash into their hands with this idea that we think it's going to trickle down to the other three players, right? And it's not. And so how they could have drugged this out even longer than 12 years uh, and it might, it might go longer than that, but to date it's been 12 years, um, is they should have been doing the QE and then, you know, for a couple of years, and then they would do UBI for a couple of years and then they do QE for a couple of years and then they do UBI for, and they needed that balance between the two because you would have got inflation. If you were, if you were doing UBI at the same levels of the units you were putting in via QE, if you were doing that much UBI down into the, into the population, you would have, trust me, you would have got your inflation. Right. No doubt about it. Yeah. I mean, just look at the meat prices over the last nine months since they did that one check, right? I mean, it's about straight up. Yeah. So um, if they would have had that balance, I think they could have taken this thing out for 25 years or something crazy. Who knows? But the fact that they, they pulled that lever for 12 years straight, they drove the interest rates down to nothing. And now they're saying, oh, wow, people are literally killing themselves on the street and we got social unrest. Maybe we should do a little bit of UBI, right? Like, and then once they turn and, and what I think people don't understand about the implications of UBI is as soon as they go down that path and as soon as the CPI gauge starts coming in because you're pushing the money down to the bottom, right? The CPI gauge starts, starts demonstrating quote unquote inflation for the gauge that they're using the measure you know, they're measuring inflation with this, right? There's just this, these couple things in this little basket. Once that starts coming into play, well, what happens to interest rates? Or what, what tries to happen with interest rates? They try to go up because there's a premium above inflation is how the fixed income market prices itself, right? So now they're, they're forced to step in because they can't allow that to happen. They can't allow interest rates to go up or they can't afford the fiscal bill, right? So now they have to step in and they have to do more QE. So if they start doing UBI right now, after they smush the, the interest rates down to zero, they're forced to match all that UBI with even more QE in order to keep the interest rates at 0%. So it's crazy. I mean, it's <laughs> printing. They're, they're, double down, they're, they're doubling down on any printing that they do in the UBI front. They're going to have to match it in the QE front, which... You know, if you were doing it uh, like in tandem with each other and in parallel with each other, I think you could have stretched it out even further. And I'm not suggesting that's what they. No, of course. You're you're in an end game, right? Yeah. 2008 was the end game, and now it's just all the the manipulation in order to keep uh, social unrest from actually playing out. Yeah. So, I mean, what? How do you see it playing out from there, knowing that that's probably the playbook, right? And knowing how much unrest there's been just in this short amount of time, and not solely looking at that, but that as a, you know, a proxy for how 
broken the system is becoming and how rapidly it's becoming so. I mean, the election is coming up in November. Like, what are you... How do you see this playing out? Like, I get that the end game is, you know, since... And, and let's... Uh, the caveat here is a shitload of people don't ever look at this stuff. I think it was even you who who commented it on Twitter or something today that, you know, there's only a tiny, tiny, tiny portion of people that ever look at something like the CPI, even as flawed and ridiculous as that is. Yeah. Um, so a ton of people are not only going to misdiagnose the problem, they're not even going to be looking in this the right universe for the problem. Um, mm -hmm. And so even though I, th I think you're right when you say, you know, people that do look, the case for Bitcoin is becoming stronger and stronger. And the more people like the MicroStrats and the sailors of the world come in and validate that thesis, it's going and the Paul Tudor Jones, it's going to be make it so much easier for, you know, the quote unquote smart people that are looking at the stuff to say, yeah, it makes sense. Five percent, ten percent, fifty percent, whatever it is, that's that's a different story, but it'll make sense. But for a shitload of people, uh, they're gonna be directed, actively directed away from it by governments, et cetera, and those that in conjunction with them not having any kind of interest, inclination, or education around it in the first place is going to mean they ain't getting a piece. So, you know, how how tell, how do you see this playing out over the next six months, twelve months, twenty four months? So the big crash that we had in March with the stock market, I think it was the the most aggressive drop for the time span and the percent move, it was like the biggest slope down that I think we've ever seen. Yeah. I think that uh, if they don't continue to do UBI, UBI fiscal policy down into the masses type activities like they did back then, you're going to have another event like that. Now, when it happens, I have no idea. Um, but I think that policy air, that fiscal policy air, is going to manifest itself again. Um, it's just the rate at which, you know, it's, it's almost like a pregnancy. You know, if, if, a, if your wife goes into pregnant, if she's, if she's delivering a baby and she's, she's there, it's like every two minutes, right? The contraction happens. Then it goes to one minute. I think what, you're, what you might see in the market is, is whatever that tempo is, I don't know, but if it's on a, a six-month basis to an annual basis, you're going to have another major, major drop and liquidity of it because it's a liquidity event is what it is. It's, it's, it's impairment on balance sheets. It's the uh, derivatives market blowing up uh, alongside of debt exploding because it's just a promise. And so you have that impairment of those promises that all uh, feed on each other like a water wheel. So like once it starts spinning in one direction, it does the exact same thing when it goes the opposite direction. So when you start getting impairment, that compounds. Like if I owed you money, well, then you owed somebody else money based on that promise. They unravel themselves. I think that you're going to see something like that play out to the same magnitude, if not worse, than what we saw in March. And the, the governments around the world, not just in the U.S., governments around the because this is all based on the pegging of, of all currencies to the dollar and going back to Bretton Woods and all that stuff. So um, I think you're going to see governments around the world have to step in, do a massive amount of UBI, which then is going to have to be followed up by a massive amount of QE in order to ensure the interest rates don't go up. Um, 
And I think what you're going to have in the backdrop, based on what you and I believe is going to happen with Bitcoin, you're going to have this thing that looks like a rocket that's shooting to the moon in the background that's completely decentralized. All those easy narratives that we talk about are going to be popping out and people are going to be saying, okay, so this has been happening for 10 years and you used to be able to buy a pizza and now you can buy a Gulfstream, whatever, with the same amount of Bitcoin just in a 10-year period of time. Like what, what the heck is happening? Why are all these tech companies putting this on their balance sheet? Why are a few tech companies 10Xing in value? What in the world is going on? Are we, are we witnessing hyperinflation in Bitcoin terms? And uh, that's when I kind of suspect that's when the bond market's going to play a, a massive role because all these people are sitting in this debt that's yielding literally nothing. It's yielding negative. When you account for the inflation, it's, it's yielding a negative return. You're guaranteed to lose money. You're guaranteed to lose buying power is how I should phrase it. And people who are guaranteed to lose buying power are going to look for alternatives, especially when they're in triple digit returns, quadruple digit returns. Yeah. And so, Back to kind of the the bifurcation between people that are aware of these sort of processes that are at play and the the means and tools available to mitigate, you know, how much it negatively affects them. If we put Bitcoin into the the pile of all the other tools that had previously existed, right? So over the last ten years, if you were wealthy and you were somewhat savvy, then you put your money in the stock market, you win. And someone who is not savvy and doesn't have a lot of extra cash, they just hold cash and they lose, right? If presumably that's, I mean, I know we like to say that Bitcoin is a wealth transfer to the fill in the blank, the curious, the millennials, the whatever. But the fact is, it's, it's, it's basically just the same process, maybe a larger cohort of people saying that because they're paying attention, but there's still just a cohort of people that have the means and the awareness to use a tool in order to protect themselves and, and financially benefit from what's coming. There's still going to be a huge cohort that isn't right. And so, um, I think ultimately Bitcoin changes the world. I think it's a massive force for, for hope and good in the world. And that's why I'm here talking to you. And that's why I love doing all this stuff. But I think until it gets to the point where it's de facto, where it's just you're like you know you're born and it's the money you use or it underpins the money you use you don't even think about it. Uh, the fact that it requires kind of concerted effort to understand and engage is going to mean that there's a, a big cohort of people that are left out, and it's that cohort that uh, concerns me, right? Because it'll be a large cohort, and it'll be they'll be increasingly disenfranchised and and. Uh, you know, impaired by the existing system and how it functions and, and how it treats them. So, you know, I, you know, I, so, the tr so the transition period is, is not going to be pleasant. Yeah. There's, there's no way it can be. I, in my opinion, I don't see how a transition period of, of something of this magnitude can be pleasant, but I don't think that, I mean, think about it. If people see this as the new standard of value, they're going to demand that they're paid in it. And if you're a business that's not profitable, you're not going to be in business. So I think that that part of it is where so many jobs are dependent on the printing press right now. Mm. And so when that goes away and, and <clears throat> the cost of capital is, is back <laughs> because 
that's what that's what's going to prevent, I think, a lot of uh, investment here in the transition period is people like you and me that are holding these Bitcoins now are looking at the opportunity cost or the risk. And there's a real cost of capital for our investment for those Bitcoins to be chasing investment opportunities. Like it has to be one hell of a, of a return for me to give up my Bitcoin to invest in something that is going to somehow going to outpace the return that I'm just going to get by owning that currency. Right. So what that's going to do is it's going to force companies that don't make money to go out of business. Those people who used to work for those companies are going to be out of a job. They're going to be looking for employment opportunities. And the people that do have, that are working for a profitable company that still have uh, skilled labor in the marketplace are going to demand payment in Bitcoin. They're going to, they're going to bridge that transition a whole lot faster than the ones that aren't employed. I, you can't, you know, as an aero, as, as a guy who, who did engineering and aerospace engineering, right? You can't have lift without drag. It's impossible. For every time you work out a lift equation on designing an airplane, guess what? There is, there is a drag uh, equation that's, that's right there along with it that has to be performed anytime there's lift. Yeah. And so what I would describe as what's happening in the marketplace is long-term, this is going to be revolutionary of what's taking place. But that doesn't mean that the transition is going to be a pleasant experience. Totally. And do you, I mean two questions off the back of that, but this process and the ability for the existing system to continue operating in the way that it's been operating. Um, how long do you, do you envision that them being able to do that and in such a transition? And I think we touched on this last time, but it, you know, it's becoming more relevant by the day to ask this question is what kind of considerations do you have for, you know, basically making sure that you don't get caught in the crossfire, as it were, during this transition? So I think uh, my base case is it's going to happen faster than the market thinks. What's that mean? Um, <laughs> what's your time? What's the date? <laughs> um, it, it really comes down to if the stock to flow model is accurate, and we are going to 100,000 plus here in the coming year or two. I just think that it's going to be a, an awakening in the marketplace as to something's up. And I think that it's going to cause a, a migration over to a standard like this faster than people are thinking. Um, so, I mean, that's my base case. I just don't know how you're going to be able to keep the lid on this thing. Is, is really where I'm at. And, and I think that what's equally as important with that is the opportunity cost of everybody in the market to make no return, to make a negative yield buying power return um, is just amplifying the desire to, to come over to a, a, something that's very shiny and, and looks like a, uh, an opportunity. You know, when you look at, I th when you go back and you look at the 1920s in Germany and the, the gold chart, when the currency failed, it, it happens pretty aggressively. Um, I just kind of suspect we're, we're dealing with something like that, but on a global scale right now. 
And as to the question about <clears throat> kind of how you insulate you and your family, your loved ones from uh, the, you know, the chaos of a transition, what kind of considerations do you give to that? So if you're sitting on a lot of Bitcoin, I think you'd be really dumb to go out and just start buying a bunch of things. And, and like, let's say you start making a bunch of money. This thing goes to a hundred thousand. You go out there, you're like, Oh my God, I'm going to buy a new house. I'm going to get that car. I always wanted. I think that's, that's a very stupid strategy. Um, lay low. I would play this. I'd lay, I'd lay very low, probably a whole lot longer than you want to. And do you ever give consideration to being a vocal voice about this stuff? And you know, People. I, th I think we're already checking that block, right? Well, no, that's what I mean. That's what I mean. You know, I, I guess you've crossed the Rubicon and that's just the way it is, right? Yeah, but I, I think, uh, you know, if things got really crazy, yeah, I, I would disappear. I would not be on on the net or whatever. Right. Right. I, I mean, my specialty is actually in military operations, not in fighting. Well, that's what I'm so asking you. Let me, let me tell you, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I am much more prepared in that realm than I am in the finance realm. Well, I want to ask if you can give any of that away, but I assume some of <laughs> some, some, some most of it is uh, is held pretty close to the chest. But if you were an individual with holding Bitcoin and who yeah. who had the optionality to be mobile, you know, if they needed to be with themselves and their family, what are some of the top considerations as a military minded person that you would be uh, hoping they would have? Uh, be quiet. Shut <laughs> your mouth. God damn it. Don't do anything that's ostentatious. Uh, you know, be prepared for pretty much everything and uh, mentally prepare yourself to do some crazy things, I guess. I don't know. Oh, I like that last one. Um, I want to, before we move on from this topic uh, of kind of macro outlook, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on the, and I, it may be ultimately moot, but. The inflation, deflation, dollar strength, dollar weakness um, conversation. Do you, you know? Obviously, the dollar has been weakening uh, over the last few months. Do you think? You know, you mentioned the possibility for another steep liquidity crisis. Do you think when things get, um, if things get increasingly hairy, do you think you know the the market in the medium term before they kind of wake up to something like bitcoin do they flock to the dollar just as a traditional safe haven liquid uh, store of value in an uncertain world or does the dollar yeah. continue to weaken um i mean when we say the dollar is weakening we're saying it's weakening relative to other currencies the other currencies are then going to weaken and then it's going to strengthen the dollar like that whole revolving door of of it being strong or weak is just going to continue to become more uh, competitive. And um, that's why um, I guess I don't really have too much of, a, of an opinion about how strong or weak the dollar is going to be in the coming six months or year, because it's just going to continue to be this rat race of competition amongst other countries and their currencies to continue to devalue. Um, and I have no idea what those policy decisions are going to be or, or how reactive some of those policy decisions are going to have to have to be based on fiscal decisions that, that are beneficial or, or poor performing for that domestic country. Um, so when I look at Bitcoin's performance relative to you name it fiat currency, that fiat currency is going to get annihilated relative to Bitcoin in the coming 12 to 24 months. Mm -hmm. That's that's my opinion. That's my base case. Right. Has it been has the last 
you know, and I know you've been into Bitcoin for a while now, but I, I get the sense that probably like all of us with each passing month, the conviction increases. And cause I remember first hearing you on a bit on a podcast, I think in early 2019 and you, you know, you're obviously insightful, informed as you, as you often are, but uh, it feels like everyone is becoming more uh, convinced of this narrative and convicted as we move forward. And as you said already in this discussion, you know, you, there's few things that are going to outperform Bitcoin right now. And you have to consider the opportunity cost of anything that you do visa, you know, versus holding Bitcoin. And so as someone who's, you know, built a media empire on talking about investing um, and someone who presumably does a lot of it personally, has this, is, are you in kind of a Zen state right now because you, you know, you have such a main thesis and has this been, is this like the, the biggest main thesis of your career? And are you like, from an investment perspective, are you just kind of locked in and waiting to see how things are going? And then of course, working on your business, like, is this a, you know what I'm saying? That may be a bad, a, a weird way well, to word think, it, but I think the thing that's changed since the start of the year is COVID had a huge impact on speeding up the timeline. Right. Right. Um, because that was, that was like trying to run a race and tripping and falling in, in, in during the race. Like you're, you're gonna, you're gonna accelerate your, your place in last in line. And I think that the whole COVID thing just expedited the whole timeline of, of all of this. Um, the other thing that for me became way more bullish is really all the Caitlin Long stuff. Um, I always had kind of concerns as to how the government was going to really kind of treat this when it really started getting hot and heavy. And I'd say we're there right now. And like today, Kraken, Chartered Bank. Big news. It's, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, the news there is just every single person that said governments are going to regulate this. I don't know how you can possibly respond to today's news with Kraken. Um, the other big news is that big, large banks can, can do the same types of, of stuff just as long as it's not their primary revenue stream. Um, so all of these things, all of the arguments that for me were big concerns on the regulatory front have actually been the exact opposite in 2020. And if you would have told me that in 2017, that this would have been the case that was playing out. And Bitcoin was still at ten thousand or eleven thousand or whatever it is. Um, I I would have I, I don't know that I would have completely bought into that. I would I would have probably called you a liar. I wouldn't have suspected that that would have been such a such a slam dunk win in this direction for for the Bitcoin space. Um, so th- there's a couple things that have changed since the beginning of the year that for me has, has really kind of amped up the argument and, uh, I'm not seeing, I'm seeing a risk by holding a whole lot of other things and a lot less of a risk in, in being in Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with that assessment. Do you think, you know, talking about the government and, you know, perhaps you're right in saying that the the regulatory risk maybe is going to turn out not to be as large as, as, as we might've thought. Now it's still, you know, in the large scheme of things, it's early days, but at least at this point, it seems like there's more tailwinds than headwinds. Um, Do you think from a competitive 
perspective uh, with central bank digital currencies. Now, obviously, I'm not comparing the central bank digital currency on its face to Bitcoin, but I'm saying, you know, kind of from that perspective that we were talking about earlier of this bifurcation, do you think that buys them any time because of the agility that uh, a central bank digital currency the the increased functionality and manipul you know ability to manipulate things that that provides the government and the central bank does that buy them time um, in this process at all or do you think you know Bitcoin just still melts faces and causes everyone to to move over in the next cycle? So, oh my, I was adjusting my volume and now it's way too loud. Is that loud on your end? Yeah, you're good. You're good. It's good. Okay, so. Um, this is where it's really important to go into like level two, level three critical thinking on that idea. So you're talking about the agility of state issued tokens and the fact that they can program, they could potentially program it so that it could be spent once or that it could be kept within the, the geographic area of the United States and can't be sent overseas. Like the, all these things are important ideas that could keep the manipulation going um, because they could just issue it stateside and, 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 and do these things. Where I think it breaks down is when you start going into the level two, right? So technically, look at, look at the challenges that are happening over on the Ethereum side as far as programmable contracts mm. and how difficult that is. And this is a free and open market. And you have some of the smartest engineers working on that technical problem. And now all of a sudden you're saying that we're going we're gonna to have a government entity through an acquisition process step in and hire a contractor because there's no way the government has programmers that are going to do this organically. They'd never do that. They would hire a contract. They put some contractor on, on, on contract some defense contractor or whatever, they put them on contract to develop a token that then can do all these things. They're going to somehow prototype that. They're going to test it. They're then going to roll that out without any errors or mistakes into the open market. And we're talking about money here. We're not talking about something that can and cannot work and it's not really a big deal, right? How does it work if you, if, if I get this token and I spend it with you, but then it doesn't necessarily manifest itself onto your balance sheet because it disappears after so many spends. How do, like, you see where I'm going. I with see this. where you're going. So, so then you, so then you're talking about a balance sheet that has tokenized money and it has the old kind of money on it. And the tokenized money can only be spent with other vendors that are stateside. So then you get into, dude, when you start talking the, the technicals of that surface level argument that you hear some people talking about as far as like state issued tokens, in my opinion, it falls, it falls apart immediately. I think the timeline for getting something like that in, in a production level implementation into the market, <laughs> years. That's not happening. And like, it would take the government at its fastest, probably six months to just put somebody on contract to start working on it, let alone 
the actual development of it, which would be, I, I, and, and then you're saying that you're at the technical maturation to even do it, which I think is the, the first argument I was making, which is look at what the open market's trying to do as far as smart contracts with the money right now. And like, so now what, what, what they could do is they could do like we saw, I forget which country it was with liquid where they were issuing tokens, domestic tokens over liquid to, to put money into the hands of some of their population, which it was one of these island nations, I think I down remember. in the Caribbean, right? Yeah, I can't remember which one. Um, you could see that, but I mean, at the end of the day, I think that just adds more validity into uh, <laughs> Bitcoin, right. I guess. Well, so, so do you think um, this, do, do you think the ultimate uh, scenario and probably sooner, as you keep saying, than most people might imagine is is government capitulation. Because, I mean, one of the things to consider is that if the stock-to-flow model holds up, and I, I, I do want you to put a few more words on that because everyone loves to hear Preston talk about the stock-to-flow model and uh, breaking the stock-to-flow model to the upside. But if uh, if that happens, if it even approximates, you know, staying on uh, in, in line with the model, you know, a lot of Bitcoiners are going to be fairly well capitalized. And I think a lot will probably become involved in the political process. And the reason why I think that is relevant is because early days, most Bitcoiners didn't think, you know, the government would capitulate. It would kind of be like a, a dirty fight and one would have to win and one would, one would have to lose. But in an environment where, you know, there's, you know, there's so many people with a certain ideology that are capitalized, perhaps it's the case that enough, you know, people get voted in or, or put into office that this becomes uh, a popular political uh, move and it, it gets pushed through that way. And we, maybe we avoid, you know, a long drawn out battle. What do you think, uh, you know, do you think it's a, the government will capitulate just because they just simply can't compete? And how does, uh, your assessment or expectations for the stock to flow model play into that. So I thought today's announcement with Kraken was, was interesting that you saw the governor of the state tweeting about it. So what does and, that And tell Texas you? has a, a, a Bitcoin friendly governor now as well. So what's fascinating about our country is you have competition amongst the states, right? with all the stuff that Caitlin's doing up there in Wyoming and they have other States that are saying, Hey, what did you guys do to get this passed? And they're like, I don't know, figure it out. Right. <laughs> they're basically they're They're in competition to attract that capital into their state. And so if you're, if you're a state government and you're saying, well, why aren't they telling us anything? And why is this governor tweeting about this, this crypto regulated bank in their, in their state? And what is it that we're missing right now? I think you have this competitive piece that's going to happen at the state level, especially because these states, some of these states are in debt up to their eyeballs and with no, and with a fiscal trend that's just taking them off the charts and they don't control their currency. So I think what, what could potentially play out is you might get to start getting this competition amongst the states that then is going to trickle up into the federal level that could potentially bridge the gap for um, elected officials just being more open to what's going on. I think the one thing that 
has to be part of the conversation, but doesn't guarantee that it'll be part of the conversation. It's just the game theory amongst nation states that when you show either you're first or you're last on this one, and you do, do not want to be last, you do not want to put a, uh, a policy in place that makes you the last participant on a global scale. Um, because boy, if, if you're wrong about it, you're going to, you're going to pay the price for decades. And, uh, I mean, look at, look at India right now. It looks like, I think I read something where they're reversing their stance on it. Uh, China did a 180 on their, the way that they were dealing with it. Who knows what their real strategy is versus what their public strategy that they say it is. I kind of suspect it's more aggressive, uh, for the accumulation of Bitcoin than, than what they present publicly. Um, and there's very little evidence, I, no evidence for that opinion. I, that's just me speculating. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, hopefully we have, here in the United States, hopefully we have elected officials that are smart enough to understand the game theory and, and not wanting to be the last one at the table. But who knows? We'll see. It, it really comes down to who's in power at what time and, and how much critical thinking they have under their belt to, to be able to ask the hard questions of themselves and, and see the direction that everything's going. But I think the fact that you have technology eating the world, and this just happens to be another technology type thing that's now eating the world is, is hopefully going to give them enough clues that they, they better get on, on board. Last question before there's, there was a couple of Twitter questions. I want to hit you up if, if you've got the, the time, but yeah. what, uh, or two last questions, actually, with the stock to flow model and how you see this, this, the price action playing out, I've heard you say before, and you may, you may have even said it in our last conversation that you, part of you, you know, let's say 51%, uh, thinks that it may break the model, but to the upside, which means it may not conform to the model's pricing, but it may not conform because it's higher than what the model is expecting. Um, if that were the case, do you does that insinuate or suggest that it wouldn't kind of follow a boom bust sort of cycle anymore and it would just slowly trudge upward as you know players from all areas of the world flood in you for the model to continue to play out in the cycles you're you're effectively saying whether you believe it or not that you believe fiat currencies are going to continue to play a role in that the market's going to continue to want to use them for economic calculation. Yep. Um, you don't, I don't, I don't know how that's going to be possible. Like, how am I going to continue? How am I going to be doing economic calculation? Meaning I'm going to go out there and I'm going to assess the value of a business when my cost of capital in that fiat denominated currency is negative. Right. Especially as I'm watching this thing, just go off the charts over here. Because um, I just don't know how that would happen. So it's like when in Germany in the 1920s, when the currency failed, it failed. It, it wasn't like it was hanging around for decades and it was still being used. The reason it was useless is because if you went down to the store and you bought something, you had to take literally a barrel full of money. And by the time you got there, you needed two barrels of money to buy something that you couldn't do economic calculation anymore. It was, it was a failed currency. So it really kind of comes down to that. If, if the market can, if, if they can somehow manage to do MMT and these negative interest rates and, 
to digitize all the money and like all those things, which I think they're going to have to do in short order. Um, maybe they can, maybe they can pull it off. I just, I don't see it, but that might be my bias, right? I, yeah, sure. I sure. Yeah. Um, but if you're correct, then that would suggest that, you know, this cycle we see that breakdown of the existing fiat currency systems and far greater adoption and use of, of Bitcoin within the, you know, let's say by having 2024. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's so far out there. And I think so many things have to happen between now and, and a year from now. Like, I think there's going to be a lot of things that play out. Mm. It might be worse. It might be actually a lot better than what I'm kind of anticipating out of the market. I don't know. So, um, it's, it's a fun thing to talk about, but in, in reality, as far as positioning yourself or making any type of real like financial decisions around that, I think it's way too early to even really kind of, uh, dig into it more than just kind of the surface level ideas. And, and, and I think it's just more of a fun conversation than more than anything. Yeah, totally. People love to hear, uh, bullish stock to flow <laughs> conversations. Um, you know, the, the thing that, that I toy with is I'm using the previous four year cycles, the, basically a fractal, right? I'm looking at the last four year cycle and I'm saying, Hey, I think this fractal is going to rep this fractal is going to replicate itself on this four year cycle. I think that when you look at the speed at which, uh, you had the bull market on the last fractal, it was the first 70,000 blocks was pretty much where it really performed that bull market and an overshoot of the stock to flow valuation. I suspect you're going to see something similar, but that doesn't mean that, that you would see it play out in that same first 70,000 blocks. Maybe it's, maybe it's 150,000 blocks. I don't know. I, I tend to believe that, um, I think this is a little bit of the engineer in me coming out when you get into vibrations and how things function, when you have this repetition that it happens at the same exact, uh, interval, and for, for this, the protocol is exer exercising this four-year interval. The, the oscillations that happen inside of that, that interval, interval, as long as it con is consistently hitting at the same interval, it, it finds a uh, kind of like a systematic rhythm to it. So when I look at um, how the cycle played out in the first four-year uh, block of, of Bitcoin's history, your stock to flow was adjusting. It's such a, a fast clip um, that I think that you, you had like two spikes inside of that first four year cycle. The second four year block is, is the one that I'm matching to this one here where I'm saying, I think it's going to be the first 70,000 blocks. You're going to have an overshoot and then it comes back. Um, and whether the overshoot just keeps on running or not, who knows, right? But I think as, as far as like a planning factor, if you were, if you were buying options or whatever, I'm kind of using that as my base case. And, um, as of right now, the, the stock to flow seems to be on that exact same glide slope as the last, uh, four year cycle, as far as percentage wise from the, from the halving to where we're at, it seems to be taking a very similar approach. Um, that percent would take you to roughly 20,000 around Christmas. 
And around Christmas to January timeframe, somewhere in there at the start of 2021 is when you should be making the previous all-time high of 20,000 and getting ready to go higher. So if, if that doesn't play out, um, then maybe we're looking at something, we're looking at a bull market that's going to take longer than what, uh, than what we saw in the last one for whatever reason. Yeah. I, I think that's a big question, right? Because some, some people think, will it conform to the, you know, the intervals of the having and the stock to flow model, or mm-hmm. will the economic mass of each incremental quote unquote cycle, or, um, will the, as the economic mass increases, will that prolong the bull market? Because it just, it's bigger. You need more capital now to have an influence on it and to really push the price higher. I, I just found it fascinating that on the last four-year cycle, in that four-year cycle, there's 210,000 blocks. And if you break that into thirds, that's where you pretty much saw what I found quite fascinating. The first 70,000 blocks, the, the price, your bull market came to a head, right? It was at its, at its all-time high. 70,000 blocks later, you were hitting your all-time low. 70,000 blocks after that, which was your next halving event, the price was literally on the stock to flow of like 8,600 or whatever, like right on it. So I found that fascinating that 70,000 blocks peak, 70,000 blocks bottom, 70,000 blocks on the money, ready for the next four-year cycle, next 210,000 blocks. Mm -hmm. We'll see if it plays out. We shall see. Um, All right. Before last one, before the Twitter questions, what's uh, the most exciting thing on your mind these days, what's taken up, you know, the most of your mind energy, whether it's an intellectual rabbit hole or, you know, what are you chewing on the most these days? You know, I could be anything. I, I mean, don't have a good answer for you. <laughs> um, hmm. I, I don't have a good answer for you. I'm heavily consumed in the markets. I, I just love, uh, finance. I thoroughly enjoy them. I, I really enjoy doing calculations of what I, a business is worth. And so I, that's probably why I have such an attraction to the financial markets. Um, I really enjoy just reading books and trying to educate myself. I have a fascination with biology. That doesn't mean I'm all that great at it, but I, I really like the complexity of it. I like to try to break it down into easier, understandable, uh, digestible ways of looking at it, kind of a mechanical engineering kind of mindset to biology. Um, that keeps me very busy. Um, I'm obviously very involved with my family. They keep me, you know, very busy. Uh, but yeah, I think that's a lame answer. I don't have anything really too exciting for you, man. <laughs> All good. All right. So a couple of questions from Twitter. And actually, the, the the family one is relevant. And of course, only share as much as you're comfortable with. But a lot of Bitcoiners, uh, you know, there comes a time when they have to explain Bitcoin to their loved ones, whether it's their parents or their siblings or their wife and kids or whatever. Um, you know, have you have you done that? And do they uh, appreciate what you're so uh, enthusiastically talking about on the internet with strangers. So my wife has no interest in finance at all. Like (laughs) from the day I met her, (laughs) like at all. So like I was not going to win over her by talking about stocks or any of that stuff. So it's, it's kind of interesting and it's, you know what? It's nice because, uh, 
like when I'm in it, I'm in it, especially on the computer. I'm trying to learn, I'm reading all these different things. Uh, and when I step out of my office, it's just like, I leave all that stuff in the office and her and I just talk about other things. Now she might, she might disagree with that, but I feel like I do not talk about like almost any of this stuff with her. What about Bitcoin though? Do you talk about Bitcoin? She definitely has heard the term Bitcoin probably a lot more than any spouse wants to hear as far as like in casual conversations, if I'm on the phone or whatever, or if I'm recording a podcast, whatnot, but you don't keep her up late at night telling her how it's going to change the world for your children and stuff like that. You're a better man than me. (laughs) (laughs) She is. It'd be fun to have her opinion, but I don't think that I do that. (laughs) Uh, We just, yeah, we talk about other things. Right. Right. Um, Another question was, uh, and I think I know the answer, but I ask you anyways, in terms of trying to trade the top of a next cycle, the age old question, what yeah. are your thoughts? So I think that to, to do it or, or uh, rebouncing is, just for the rec, it's, you know, basically the same, but I wanted to get that in there. Like if you wanted to rebalance a portfolio or somehow trade the top, you know, I did this in 2017. I think I, I traded you're saying, the, yeah, I traded the top of 2017 and dude, I knocked it out of the ballpark. <laughs> but at the same time, right. I knocked it out of the ballpark, but I, I literally almost had a heart attack doing it. So I think that's where I'm coming at this one from maybe a different lens of saying like, uh, I don't know that I would recommend that. And, and I I think, Back in 2017, I did not have nearly the conviction that I have today as to what I think this is becoming. Like all the legal considerations were still very valid and and concerning back in 2017. You didn't have like banks getting regulated and any of that kind of stuff. Um, If you talk to people on the street about it, they had no idea what you were talking about. Um, you were just in a completely different environment back then than what you're seeing today. You, you didn't have the macro backdrop of things getting ready to just blow up all around you. They weren't, you weren't having these fiscal like disasters where they're having to do UBI. There's been a lot that has changed since the 2017 period of time. And so, um, not only that, if you were going to try to do this, Let's just say you wanted to hold your Bitcoins. Let's say you had 10 or what, I don't know how many Bitcoins the typical person has, but let's just say they have a few Bitcoins and they wanted to protect, um, they want to protect that at the top. So let's just say you try to do that through a put. Your put, especially after the volatility that I expect we're going to see between now and then, can you imagine how, how that, put is going to be priced based off of the last 12 months of volatility. I mean, it's going to be mind blowing how expensive that's going to be to put on a put to protect that position. So, um, then you get into the tax implications of, you know, if you own it now, I think that you're going to be beyond the one year mark. Every country is different. So people that are listening to this in a different country, they got different tax considerations. But if you sell and then you take, let's just say you take a 15 or a 30% hit on the price because you have that realized gain. Um, now you got to ensure that you at least get that much of a drop in the price. Then you have to accurately re-enter the position 
um, at, at a lower price. I just think that it's an incredibly difficult thing to do. And I would caution people against that mostly because of everything that's happening in the macro backdrop. Um, because the, one of the big risks that you have on this cycle that you definitely didn't have, in my opinion, back in 2017 was the, the risk of a sovereign entrant. You know, what if country X decides that now they're going to step into the market and they're just going to print like crazy and swap it for bitcoins, which can't be printed. What is that going to do to the price? And if you're out of the market, cause you're here, you're, you're just Mr. Joe, uh, the best trader on the planet mindset. Like I can, I can do this, right? I got this and some sovereign entrance steps in. Are you accounting for that risk? There's no way you're accounting for that risk. If you're, if you're trading it, um, and that's why I just buy, I don't, I, even though I feel like I have a good beat on maybe the MACD or whatever, or something that's, uh, being overbought and we're going to see an interim correction. I don't sell those positions and then buy them back and realize those tax that like, dude, that's, that's a fool's errand in my opinion, a, a strong fool's errand, but Hey, there's people doing it. Yeah. Don't let me discourage you. I just, that, that's my point of view. This kind of ties into another question, but um, it was actually comes from Chris uh, from Snappa, the guy who, one of the guys who came out uh, talking about adding Bitcoin to their balance sheet. Um, how do, he was wondering how you did it personally for your business, like obviously not sharing any private details, but did you incrementally DCA? Did you just, do you just, as income comes in, does a certain percentage go towards Bitcoin? He was hoping to yep. understand that a bit better. Yeah. So open in a, you can go to almost any of these exchanges and you can open a corporate, uh, trading account. And then, uh, just like you would on a personal level, you're just taking your, your cash, whatever free cash flows your company's kicking off and whatever type of allocation you want to apply to it, then you just send that over to the exchange and you conduct the buy. Uh, unlike Michael Saylor, I do not have a person that is dedicated to, to, uh, buying 38,250 Bitcoin. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's all there is to it. Um, how do you feel about borrowing money to invest in Bitcoin at this point in time? I'm, uh, I'm against that. I don't think that, um, yeah, I just think it's bad form and just, uh, can you have a little bit of leverage, especially if you're kicking off a lot of free cash flows that you could recuperate and pay back really easily? Of course, um, you know, in business school, they'll tell you that that not having a little bit of debt to to leverage onto your uh, income statement, balance sheet, whatever, uh, you know, is you're not you're not taking advantage of of the returns that you could get. Um, I just I. I would caution people against it unless you really know what you're doing from a financial standpoint and a, uh, you know, just uh, a leverage ratio. You're wanting to make sure that you're a debt to equity of like 0.5 or less, I think, from a business standpoint. I think it's a safe and sound strategy um, on an individual level. Just, yeah, I, I wouldn't recommend it. Be careful. Um, last one. Someone wants to know uh, how you think the bond market blowing up is going to affect real estate. I'm not sure if they're talking about residential or commercial or both, but presumably you've touched on this in the past. So 
that's a really tricky question, mostly just because of, of what type of real estate are you talking about? Where are you talking about? What's the population growth of where you're talking about? Because like those are really the big factors in real estate. Um, where I think that it's going to get difficult, if, if this scenario would play out and you see the dollar, pretty much fiat currency start to explode, the discount rates, uh, the cap the cap rates that you're seeing in real estate, uh, I think people start looking at that risk way differently. Um, because right now you're dealing with a cost of capital that is totally out of whack, totally out of whack. So is that going to have an impact on real estate? Of course it is. Um, I just, I, I, I'm not quite sure as to what the implications of that will be because I think so much of it comes down to how much of the, of the labor market continues to be employed, which is very regional specific. Um, and to, to make any type of uh, definitive, like this is what's going to happen is, is just, I, I think would demonstrate how little you know opposed to how much you know. Zing. And that's not me trying to avoid the question. It's, I, I think it's, it, there's too many variables for the, the unique uh, piece of real estate that you're talking about for me to really say one way or the other. Yeah, fair enough. You know, I heard today that I think it's in, I'm not sure if it was Canada wide or in the market that I'm in, <clears throat> but it was the best month for real estate transactions ever. Um, and I talked to some buddies that are in the car sales business, same thing. And so, you know, I interpret that as we're in a honeymoon period because uh, the people whose income wasn't impaired by COVID, you know, they've just had months of being at home and saving more than they otherwise would have and not spending. And the ones that were impaired, at least in Canada, they got support from the government that pretty much replaced their lost income. So, you know, the, 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 the spending habits are probably uh, amplified that what they were before they, they, they were pent up and, and now they're amplified. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Yeah. Um, As Lynn has said, incomes have gone up this year, so that shouldn't surprise me. Right. Anybody. So honeymoon period. And then what I'm wondering, you know, because we talk about inflation and those with assets kind of being on the winning side of that and those with, with no assets being on the losing side. But, you know, at some point, the market has to be able to buy that real estate. Like, yes, you know, real estate benefits from inflation, but there's got to be someone with the ability to buy those houses at those prices. Because if you put a house on a market, it doesn't matter how much inflation there is. If it's $2 million and nobody's willing to pay $2 million, well, then it ain't $2 million anymore, you know? So that's right. That'll be, uh, that's something that I'm watching, in, you know, a lot to see when that kind of turns over and changes, because uh, I think that will cause a commotion in itself. So much of it is is what's happening in the bond market and how all this liquidity is being provided and how it's been provided for the last 12 years. It's been gone straight into the top of the bond market, which has dropped interest rates, which makes the value of everything go up. So if you start seeing that transition, uh, interest rates trying to come up and everyone knowing that the market's being manipulated and that all their expenses everywhere they look are going up, but it's not necessarily being reflected in the bond market. Um, that's going to have, that's going to have a tremendous impact because your private sector is going to start saying, yeah, I realize CPI is zero, or at least we're saying it, that it's, that it's this lower amount, or it wouldn't be that it would be, I see CPI going up, but the bond market is still pricing risk at, at, uh, a discount to the inflation rate, which try explaining that one, <laughs> right. 
but but that would be the scenario that would actually be taking place at that point, mm-hmm. which would make no sense to market participants. So I think your your private sector is going to look at that 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 government issued debt, and they're going to say, well, that's not what I'm seeing, and this is the rate that I want to use, and therefore it's going to start impacting the the prices of of uh good services pretty much everything yeah preston uh strange times we're in man and uh i think it's been six months since we we last spoke i think those are good intervals for us to have a chat because so much is happening in uh in in that amount of time these days uh where can people learn more about you follow your work and all the great stuff you're doing i'm on twitter uh i have a podcast it's called we study billionaires um check it out. We'd love to have you guys part of the community and uh, love getting questions and just interacting with people on Twitter. And John, I appreciate the opportunity. I thoroughly enjoy talking with you. Uh, I would love to do this every six months. Yeah. Well, that's a date, man. I uh, really appreciate that. And I, I reflect that uh, exact same sentiment. And I know you're going to be on with uh, Andy Edstrom on the Swan Signal podcast tomorrow. Is yeah, that right? Tomorrow night. That's tomorrow night. Yeah, must-see TV. So everyone who's listening, check that out. Preston, thanks again, man, and uh, we'll talk again in the future. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. See you, brother. 